This is the Charlottesville Podcasting Network, a service of Town Crier Productions, bringing you another recording from an event in the community. On August 9th, 2023, the senior statesmen of Virginia gathered at Westminster Canterbury on Pantops to ask, how safe is our community? They invited the police chiefs of the three area jurisdictions to answer that question and other matters related to public safety. In attendance were Tim Longo, Associate Vice President and Chief of Police at the University of Virginia, Sean Reeves, Chief of the Albemarle County Police Department, and Michael Kotchis, Chief of the Charlottesville Police Department. The program was moderated by Bob Beard of the Senior Statesman of Virginia. We appreciate everybody for uh, showing up today, uh, showing up here today. We all know that uh, we have a problem in this community. Uh, violent crime is on the rise. This is according to a uh, recent story in the Daily Progress. Charlottesville's violent crime rate has increased by 30% in the past two years, according to the most recent data reported in the Virginia Police Database as of April 2022. In Charlottesville Police, we're investigating five homicide cases within the first three months of the year, the highest number reported since 2017. To talk about this problem, what we can do about it, how we can all work together and solve the crime problem in our community, we are so happy to welcome UVA Police Chief Tim Longo, Albemarle County Police Chief Sean Reeves, and Charlottesville Police Chief Michael Kotchis. I'm happy to start. Well, good afternoon, everyone. I, I was really excited to see some very familiar faces uh, at the front door from church, from uh, the community, from the gym, from the locker room in the gym, from the hot tub in the gym. <laughs> A lot of really important things get talked about in the hot tub. A lot of problems, community problems solved in the hot tub. I'm real happy to be here with my colleagues. When I first came to Charlottesville and 20, uh, uh, 2001, I guess it was, the police chiefs, the city, county, and the university police chief, John Miller, Mike Sheffield, and then, now, then Timmy Longo, um, we were like the three musketeers. We really were, we did everything together um, when it came to public safety. We collaborated on every major event, every major incident, every community problem. Uh, and um, sadly, I guess over time, we, things kind of change, and that, that relationship, um, from the time I retired from the city, just didn't seem as strong. And boy, I'm, I'm so happy that um, we're back back, I think, where it was before. I have two great colleagues uh, who I talk to uh, almost daily, at least weekly, come together. Um, since Mike came in January, we immediately started with uh, coming together monthly to talk about crimes, to talk about things that um, know no boundaries, uh, and more importantly, strategies around how we can deal with it. I appreciate numbers, I'm not a numbers guy. Um, people say, well, what's the stats on such and such? Well, who cares? Do you feel safe or not? Because it doesn't matter whether it's 30% or 1%. At the end of the day, you don't feel safe in your home, in your school, in your church, in your shopping center, in your neighborhoods. That's all that matters. Percentages don't matter. So um, there's a sense that people don't feel safe, and we talk about that. And what do we do? How do we do uh, better at making people at least understand and appreciate 
that um, there are law enforcement leaders uh, like my colleagues here who are willing to sit down at the table with people who live in neighborhoods and talk about strategy so that it's, uh, policing is a collaborative thing. It's not us telling you how we're gonna make your neighborhood safe. It's you telling us how you want us to go about the business of making your neighborhood safe. And if there's anything about 21st century policing I like, it's that. Because I get tired of thinking about great ideas, quite frankly. Um, you, you may have read a, a, a press release that my colleagues and, and I uh, have been pushing out over the next day or two, and I won't talk much about it because we all have something to say about it, and you'll have questions about this thing we announced called Project Safe Neighborhoods. And when it started, gosh, 30 years ago, I guess maybe Project Safe Neighborhoods started out of the Department of Justice. It was a program that really focused a lot on violent crime, guns, drugs, gangs, those kinds of things. But what I like about this latest version that we've signed up to be part of is it really has a strong community engagement piece where citizens like you get to sit down with folks like us and talk about projects and strategies around safety uh, and security and well-being for communities. And I'm excited to see that launch. I'm excited to be able to leverage partnerships with our federal government um, and then move forward. Um, should I stop there, or do you want to talk a little bit about the University Police Department? Well, let's, uh, why don't we uh, get Chief Reeves? Okay, I'll stop. I mean stop there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I was very interested, I was just listening to what you had to say. Yeah, keep going. Yeah. Uh, good afternoon, once again, my name is Sean Reeves, and I have the privilege of being the Chief of Police of the Almar County Police Department. I say it's a privilege because uh, being the first uh, Chief of Police that actually climbed through the ranks work in this community for the past 23 years now. When uh, Tim came on as the chief of police in Charlottesville, uh, I was a young patrol officer coming out of the military. And uh, so I've known Tim for a very long time and I've always uh, appreciated and admired his leadership. And now I am excited and I can't uh, st overstate it uh, about what it's like to work with uh, professional leaders with like Tim and Mike. Um, to really address some of those uh, critical issues in our community that, are, that our communities go with, like violent crime, gun violence, homicides. And for us to be able to bring our, not just the, the chiefs coming together, but when, when Chief Longo was talking about our regional meetings, we bring our senior command to these meetings. We have prosecutors, we have the state police, uh, we have other partners in our community where we have these conversations. Um, both um, open session and closed session um, with with Monster Self, we're sharing information, we're uh, sharing data on who some of these players are in our community um, that are doing some of these shootings, are committing some of these robberies and violent act. That is something that our that this level of collaboration and cooperation is something that our community hasn't seen in almost a decade, and um, in when I'm out in the community and doing community outreach, uh, a lot of times people are surprised to hear that. I think that the expectation from our community, where I was at, was uh, it's, it's, it's very fortunate, we are very fortunate um, to, to have this level of cl uh, collaboration. And from community engagement events, uh, people are surprised when, um, when they hear this, that we're, that, that we're collaborating, cooperating, and, and sharing information. Um, at, 
at a level that, that hasn't been experienced in a long time, the assumption was that, that why haven't y'all been? Why? And I can't speak to that. You know, Tim wasn't the chief of police of UVA uh, for the past 10 years, and uh, Chief Cautious wasn't the chief. Uh, so we can't we can't undo that. What we can do is focus on the future and move forward, and, and try to set an example for people who come after us of what, and not just not just at a senior level, but it's good for the officers and the mid-level supervisors and the commanders to see what happens when senior leadership and we have uh, um, good partnerships that are focused on making our community a safer place. So that's a lot of the work that that has been going on. And the county over the past year when it comes to um, dialogue and relationship building as a focus uh, when it pertains to Almar county um, i have a, you know i have data with me and we can talk about that throughout the, the course of questions uh, arise um, but I, I am very proud of the men and women who serve this community and uh, last year uh, much like my counterparts when i was sworn in the chief of police last march we were operating with 30 officers down, and, and that's, that's a significant number. So over the past year with our talented training recruitment unit with the support of our Board of Supervisors, which uh, Supervisor Lepisto Kirtley is floating around here somewhere, or she was, there she is, uh, with, with uh, some, yes, with, with support from our board, we were able to to um, make our starting salary a competitive salary because Almar County, unfortunately, was amongst the lowest paid um, in our geographic region for officers, and um, we have we're one of the largest jurisdictions, have a very high call for service, high uh, call for service, yet um, we're amongst the lowest paid, so we had to correct that. And so with that, that helped us stabilize and helped us bring on talented folks on board, both certified and brand new. And I'm proud to announce that as of this August, we're hoping to be only two officers down from 30. So it took a long time. It took a lot of effort to get us to this point. And, um, you know, it wouldn't be possible not just for, you know, the board support, but the community support as well. And we often hear that from the community when we're out in the community events or respond to calls um, that our officers are out here engaging with citizens. So, um, yeah, so, you know, over the past year, yes, we have seen uh, an increase in gun violence, but we've also made several arrests in those cases as well. And uh, with the county, some of the complications are that we're dealing with juveniles. We're dealing with juvenile gang members. And the judicial system operates a little bit differently for juveniles than it would for adults. So those are some of the, the, the challenges uh, with facing juveniles. Um, we had three homicides last year. But of interest, when you learn, when you, when you hear that we've had three homicides, when you start looking at them, the, the subject and the offender, or the victim and the offender, knew each other. In our case, several of them were domestic violence related homicides. The shootings that we had in the county, um, through the work of first responders like our police officers getting there and triaging, our fire rescue personnel getting on the scene triaging, we were fortunate that those shootings that were contributed to some of the violence in the community that's recent uptick in gang violence weren't actually homicides, but they very well could have been, had not from those staff and the emergency room staff at the University of Virginia Hospital. So they, they deserve some credit and recognition. Um, this year, you know, we had three homicides as well so far, and some of them are gang involvement, and one of them is domestic violence related as well. So, um, 
when we talk about our community being safe and, and shots fired, I think Tim uh, said it very well, uh, any number that's zero it is too much in our community. So, um, but, but the police department, the three police departments, we certainly can't arrest our way out of these situations. It takes community partners, community engagements, and other approaches to really get to the root causes of why some of these crimes are occurring. So I will put a pin in it there and turn it over to, to Thank Mike. you, Chief Reeves. Chief Conscious. Well, first of all, thank you for having me here. And um, when we talk about collaboration, even before I arrived, Tim reached out to me before I was even like, started and said, look, we're having an issue. You know, and let's just be honest, we're, most areas, we're, we're seeing across the country, right? The, the, the uptick in gun violence, um, and the, I think the challenge with what we're seeing now is that um, in the past when we've seen these upticks, it's either drug-related or you know, involving robberies or whatnot. Now a lot of these are involving beefs between kids, and you know, there's, uh, there's a there's a significant amount of um, accessibility to firearms right now. Uh, more than, I, I'll be honest, in my 25 years, uh, I have not seen this level of, uh, of the amount of firearms. I mean, we will do a search warrant on a house. You know, years ago, we might get a gun out of a house. We might get a gun out of a car. Now it's every house, every car, multiple guns. Uh, they're just, they're all over the place. And so when you have, the influx of firearms combined with, you know, youth now settling beefs online, on social media, it stays out there for much longer than maybe when we came up and um, got, into a, got into a beef, it was over within, you know, a few minutes after you get into a fight and you walk away. And so that's a, that's a challenge. Um, you know, we talked about data and, you know, Tim hit the nail on the head when he said data doesn't tell you everything. And so, yes, we've had five homicides in the city of Charlottesville since January. You know, I mean, I guess that was my welcoming committee. Um, but it, what's important to note, every one of those homicides uh, involved people who either knew each other, were acquainted with each other. They weren't random, okay? So the data will show you we had five homicides. What the data is not going to tell you is the conversations we're having around the community with folks. When they're showing us bullet holes in their homes, plugged with tissue so the breeze don't come in. I mean, these are real stories. Uh, I did a community walk the other day, and when we walked around the corner, neighbors came out and clapped. That, you know, they're like, we're glad to see you here again. And you hear stories of an elderly person who um, might have to sell their house and move because they can't find a caregiver to come there anymore because they don't feel safe. Like, these are real stories. Data don't tell you that. Okay, and so um, yes, data is important. We need to make sure our approaches to addressing crime are data driven. But data without context can be very dangerous, right? So, and I can tell you, the three of us here in this, at this table, when we sit down in a monthly Comstat meeting, we're not just looking at numbers. We're having real conversations about what we're seeing on the ground, and so it's very important. Um, I won't get into too much because I'm sure people have plenty of questions, but uh, some of the challenges in six months, you know, coming in to the, to the job here, we also had 30 vacancies in January. That's a lot. It's a lot for any agency our size. Um, we currently have cut that in half in six months, and um, we are forecasting to be fully staffed by January. 
Now, that doesn't mean fully staffed on the street. That's officers either in the academy, in field training, or whatnot. But um, our goal is to be fully staffed by January. We have adjusted resources to put to do background investigations and recruiting and help with that. Because at the end of the day, we can have all kinds of ideas of things we want to do. But I think we often, in, in our job, we, we, you, it's easy to lose track of, we, we're the people business, right? We need people to do this work. And if we're not treating our folks right, we're not gonna keep them. If we're not, you know, if we're not paying them, we're not gonna get them. And so it's, you really need to take a, a, a robust look at, at what we're doing when it comes to recruitment and retention of our staff. And that's what we've done in the Charlottesville Police Department over the last six months. Um, we just put the largest class ever from the Charlottesville Police Department to the Academy of 14 officers. Um, it is the first majority minority class we've ever sent to the Police Academy. And so, um, again, I, I couldn't be more proud of the staff I had. And, and look, when I came into this job, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I got all kinds of funny looks. Like, Charlottesville, I ain't going there. You already retired once. What, you're just glad for punishment. I got all that stuff. And I got to tell you, a lot of the stuff that I heard before I got here, it just wasn't true. Stop. The Charlottesville Police Department is a great police department with really good people. Great people. If you think about the officers that we have in Charlottesville Police Department, what they've been through, let I me mean, just go back to 2017. I had a lot of officers that were here in 2017 on that day. Think of that perspective. A lot of them are leaders in my organization. As a leader, perspective matters. So uh, I'm really optimistic about what I have within the Charlottesville Police Department and uh, where we can go. We're doing a lot. Um, that's one of the things I'm often very conscious of is, you know, step back and make sure I'm taking a look and say, well, are we doing too much? Are we moving too fast? You know, what's our capacity? And so um, we're going to continue to do that. We, we, are, uh, we are in the process right now of building out our strategic plan. We've identified multiple focus groups throughout the organization. They're meeting now. And we're going to be putting together a three-year strategic plan with different strategic priorities. So we have a roadmap. So everyone within the organization, one has a say in what their organization looks like in the future, and two, everyone knows how we're gonna get there. So with that, uh, thank you for, for having me here and having us here and uh, take questions, I guess. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Chief Conscious. I'm sure we have a lot. Should we have plenty of questions? Sir, Tara. I have the opinion that the reason for the uptick in crime is of COVID. We had schools closed for a year, and schools are the area where high school age students get integrated into a community where they connect with adults, where they get support, and those connections were severed. And uh, are we working to get those kids reconnected? And are we succeeding in reconnecting the new kids that are now ninth and tenth and maybe by the prayers? Well, I can speak to as a parent of a teenager. Do y'all still have teenagers? Yes. <laughs> so as a parent of a teenager, it's down to that. I, I can't say for sure that the uptick in crime is a result of it, but I can tell you it was a disaster, the closing of the schools, as a parent. Um, and so, I think there's definitely challenges. I mean, when you talk about um, some of the root cause of crime in general, I mean, it's, there's a lot smarter people than me that are gonna be able to probably talk about that. 
Um, but you can get back to poverty as a root cause and then all the things associated with that. Um, and then when all these systems, and I talk about it a lot, and these, the mental health system that continues to fail communities, specifically communities of color, or the education systems like you're talking about that fail communities, specifically communities of color, when these systems continue to fail these communities, then here we are, right? And so there's a lot of conversation about us not responding to mental health. I think everybody here at this table would agree we would love not to have to respond to mental health calls. That's not reality, right? So someone's got to do it. And so when these systems continue to fail these communities, um, it's the law enforcement organizations that have to step up and try to figure it out. And sometimes it's messy. And so, um, yeah, I, I don't know. Tim might have a little bit more insight or Sean. Yeah, I don't know how much more I can offer, but I will say this about COVID. We blame COVID on a lot of stuff. We really do. I mean, gosh. Um, mental health calls are up, must be, must be COVID. Uh, crime rates up, must be COVID. Kind of sucks, must be COVID. COVID destroyed our way of life, no question about that. To the extent that it's driving violent crime with kids, I, I don't know that, but I do know this. Uh, one of the things we were really smart to think about doing is when we began looking at who, who needs to have a seat at the table with President Ryan's presidential work group on gun violence reduction, we thought it was incredibly important to make sure the schools were there, that they had a voice at the table and that their insight on how we would go about reaching, to your point, reaching those kids in crisis, whether it be because of COVID or because of the broken homes they come from. Um, and and, and the, uh, the environmental and community factors that influence their behavior, whatever the cause or case, we wanted to make sure that the schools were engaged. Other thing I'll say about the schools, and I don't say it as a matter of criticism, I say it because I believe it. Biggest mistake we made was taking cops out of schools. Let me tell you why. We're not there to be an upper hand. We're not a hammer for the principal. We're not there to get into spaces that teachers might be afraid to get into. We're not the heavy. We were there, I think, to be, build relationships, to establish trust, to open up doors of communication, talk to any uh, now adult who was in Charlottesville Public Schools when Wayne Sprouse was the D.A.R.E. officer. They can't tell you who their fourth grade teacher was or sixth grade teacher was at Walker, but they can tell you Wayne Sprouts. They can tell you Officer Wayne because of the relationships he built and the influence he had on their lives. That's what cops were doing in schools, at least in this community. And boy, I sure do hope that will come a day when my colleagues are staffed appropriately enough to put those cops exactly back where they belong and that's it's engaging with their young people. So when they get to high school, they have a different perspective on what a police officer is, what they do, and how they influence their communities. No question, yes sir, uh, in, the, in the second row. Uh, if you were a dictator, what laws or what operations would you employ to reduce the number of those on the street? How do you reduce guns on the street is the question. Can I repeat your question, maybe make sure I got it right? If we were a if we were a dictator, what law would I 
imposed to reduce guns on the street? Or support <laughs> All right, so I'm going to try to be careful with that question. I'll put it down. Yeah, so I, I've got these in the floor. So let me say this. The last, the last people you want writing laws are cops. All right, that's, that's not, we don't write laws, okay? And so um, around the conversation, uh, the conversation around gun violence is very political, right? Or, or, or gun control, right? It's very political. And I, I really try to stay far away from those conversations to the extent that um, I think what's missing in that conversation is some common sense, all right? I'll give you just one example. Right now, you can go online, well, at least there, I think there was just a ruling that they upheld, I think, by the administration on, on ghost guns, right? But basically, you can go online, order pieces of a gun, have it delivered to your house, and build it, no serial number, and there you go, you got a gun. That's just ludicrous. That's, it doesn't make sense, that passes the common sense. Absent politics, I just don't see why you should be able to do that. Um, you know, absent that, you know, I'm, I don't think I'm going to uh, opine on, on what laws I think should exist other than responsible gun ownership is very important. People shouldn't leave their guns in their cars. It drives me crazy when I hear, uh, you know, I get a, a watch log and a gun has been stolen from someone's car. Like, what are you thinking? Don't leave your gun in your car. If it's at home, keep it locked up. I mean, these are common sense measures that I think... Um, most people would agree with, to be quite honest. So I don't know if you guys got anything else on that topic. Chief Rees? Yeah, no, I agree with that. Um, part of our discussion when we're analyzing data about the shootings that occur within our region, uh, we've recovered stolen firearms. And several of these firearms that were recovered were stolen out of people's vehicles. And so if people were more responsible with their firearms, responsible and secured them and kept them reach, uh, out of reach of people or criminals who would use them for ill intent, um, that's fewer guns are out and loose in the hands of people that would, would use the gun to harm others. The other part of that too is, uh, and um, it was alluded to earlier on, is, is people that suffer from mental health and making sure that um, those loved ones that, that are suffering or in crisis do not have immediate access to firearms. Over this past year, um, our police department has responded to several calls for service dealing with people in mental health crisis with firearms. Um, the last one was just this past month. Our officer tied up for almost 14 hours with an individual um, with a firearm and um, that was confronting police. So through negotiation, cooperation, and talking to this person in crisis, we were able to resolve that situation peacefully. But, um, you know, when we talk about responsible gun control, that's part of that conversation too, is just making sure that firearms are secure. There's already, you know, there's already laws in place with people um, that are in crisis or um, that to not have access, but it's, it's come upon family members too to make sure that your loved ones don't have access if they're experiencing some sort of crisis. Chief Longo? I'll tell you one thing I wouldn't do. Uh, I, uh, those of you well known, I'm a recovering lawyer. I'm a faithful uh, servant of our Constitution. The last thing I would do would be compromise that Constitution um, in any way, shape, or form. I wouldn't suspend the Fourth Amendment. I would respect what the Second Amendment says and what the Supreme Court has interpreted it to mean. But I do think it needs to be equally applied. 
And I'll tell you what I told the General Assembly last session. You've criminalized possession of a firearm in your house. State house. The General Assembly building. State, certain state grounds. But you won't criminalize it inside of the dormitory room in a state college institution. <laughs> the Supreme Court's made clear that sensitive spaces um, aren't afforded the, the protection of the, of the Second Amendment. That the, the, that the government can restrict the presence of that weapon in certain sensitive spaces. And the case law has further said a college dormitory is a sensitive space. The John Paul Jones Arena is a sensitive space. Scott Staten is a sensitive space. So if we really want to send a strong message that unless you have a legitimate law enforcement purpose for having a weapon in this space, we will criminalize your behavior. That's all I was asking them to do. Be consistent in the application of the law. If it's okay to criminalize it in this house, then criminalize it in other places that are sensitive. So I would continue to advocate that. And maybe if I get a shot, I'll do it again this year. We'll see what happens. No pun intended. Thank you. Gentlemen in the white shirt, second row. Thank you all very much for your efforts and your service. We really appreciate it. Thank you for being here today. Chief Reeves, recently the Charlottesville City Council authorized the police to do gun buyback programs in partnership with nonprofit organizations. Roanoke has done a couple of these now very successfully, offering grocery store coupons, food for guns, getting hundreds of guns out of the street, out of houses. Now, maybe not all of them are operational, but as an economist, I'm pretty confident that if you reduce the supply of guns, there'll be fewer on the street, and the price will get higher. Would you support talking to our county council, our county supervisors, encouraging them to pass a similar ordinance and even you to do a gun buyback program together with nonprofits? Yeah, the question was about does uh, Chief uh, Reeves support a gun buyback okay. program in, in Albemarle County? Okay. Chief Reeves, thank you. Yeah, um, so if you look at the research and you look at the data, and this is a conversation that Chief Cautious and I had about gun buyback programs, is are they effective? Are they effective at combating crime? What, based on some of the articles I've read about gun buyback programs, yes, it's great that, that people get gift cards, but it's rusted junk guns sometimes, or guns that people have locked up their closet from a loved one or a deceased family member that they're trying to get rid of. Um, rarely have I seen any information where the, those, those criminals that are on the street, they're actually committing violence, suddenly say, you know what, I'm going to give up my lucrative drug career and I'm going to turn it in for a food gift card and I'm going to give up my gun. So um, I don't know that there is, they are as effective. You know, you look at other major metropolitan cities that do gun back by, it's not driving down their crime. It's not driving down the gun violence. And what I don't want to see is taxpayer money being funded for other people that have jump guns or broken guns just to get rid of them and that we're not doing anything about the gun violence. Yes, it's nice and it's symbolic that you're doing something, uh, but I don't think it's going to have the attendant effect. And I'll turn it over to Mike since he knows a little bit more about this and they actually executed one. Yeah, so the so to, to Sean's point, um, he's right. There, you know, I got this question a lot when we were talking about doing this, and, and it came about because nonprofits did reach out to us and they want to do it, and, and we're moving forward with doing it. Um, but there is no data out there 
that says they were. But early on, I did talk about data being one piece of the puzzle, right? So um, when it comes to you know addressing the complex issue of gun violence, um, we, all of us at this table, have taken a very whole of community approach. And so one of the things for us, and I've continued to say this, the gun buyback program is just one small piece that we in the city of Charlottesville have decided to do. Um, and from the police department standpoint, our role really is um, education, engagement with folks, turning them in, you know, talking about, again, um, uh, safe gun ownership and responsible gun ownership. Um, and then obviously taking those firearms and destroying them. So, um, but again, that was a, uh, it, just one piece of our overall strategy within the city that, that we're doing, so. Lady in the uh, lady in the green in the back of the room, that's okay. Thank you. I work for a company called Neighbor Force, and it requires me sometimes to go into unfamiliar and frankly, I feel sort of unsafe areas. Um, shy of packing, what would you recommend for me as a senior citizen still working? Uh, and what can I do to protect myself? Should I be carrying mace or, you know, what would you recommend? For those who didn't hear the question, uh, how, should, how can senior citizens protect themselves going into unsafe areas in the region? Yeah, um, personal safety is exactly that. You know, some people feel more comfortable carrying a concealed firearms than others. I can speak to the, the, the crime that's occurred in Almaro County and the data that's in Almaro County. As far as um, the gun violence that we talk about or um, some of the violent crimes uh, that occur, whether it be homicides or rape, um, I cannot think of, of an incident over the past, dur during this examination, where it's been a stranger attacking somebody that's walking down the street minding their own business. Now, my colleagues might have had a different um, incident in their jurisdictions, but for speaking purely for Malmaro County, um, that that would be an anomaly. I'm not saying that it can't happen or will never happen, but that's that's an anomaly of those type. When we analyze all the people who were shot last year that, that survived, um, the vast majority of them knew who the offender was. There's some sort of dynamic or some sort of relationship there. But as far as uh, public uh, personal safety, it's your prerogative. What makes you feel safe? I would say that if you are going to carry concealed, make sure that you're, you are familiar with your firearm, that you're securing it, that you um, are, are training with it, that you understand it, its capabilities, same with any type of mace or personal uh, protective gear that you decide to, to take with you. So it's a very personal um, choice what you want to do, but also understanding that, um, that if you're going to deploy any type of force on another individual, then you also understand what the law says about it as well. So it's not as easy as just, I'm going to carry a gun, I'm going to carry mace. You need to know how to properly use it in the right circumstances um, for it. So, Chief Cautious, what do we do to stay safe? Well, I think Sean makes a very good point. If you think about the five homicides within the city of Charlottesville, again, not one of them were random. Okay, It wasn't just somebody walking through the neighborhood who was... And, and I'll be honest with you, we don't see a lot of random crime. I'm sure the county's probably the same, right? And on the university, I mean, it's typically people know each other. So I would say it would, de it would depend how comfortable you are, familiar you are with the neighborhood. 
it is a personal choice whether you want to carry a concealed weapon or not. All I would say is that uh, what we find is folks who typically will carry a gun, a lot of people aren't trained or know how to carry it. I mean, what are you going to do? It falls out. What, I mean, look, I, again, I've been a cop for 25 years, and uh, it's it's a pain in the neck carrying a gun off duty. Just is. And so, um, you know, it, you do what you feel is more, most comfortable for you, right? Because the last thing you want to do is introduce a firearm into a situation that a firearm didn't already exist. So uh, I think there's a lot of considerations that you have to take before, um, before making that decision. Chief Longer, yeah, I, that, that's a really great statement that Michael just made about introducing a firearm into a place where it didn't already exist. Years and years and years ago, I would, from time to time, speak to line personnel for the Baltimore Gas and Electric Company who work in alleys in East Baltimore at 3 o'clock in the morning when the electricity went out, and they would, they would have to compete for space with the local drug dealers. And I would talk to them about personal safety, and I would be asked very similar questions about what can I bring to the table to protect myself. And they would they wouldn't mention guns because they're not supposed to have guns, but they would mention all the other tools they had on their truck and what they could do with those tools. And I would listen to them calmly and politely, and then I would say to them, if anytime you introduce a tool of any sort into a fight, be prepared to have it taken from you. Because lots of times that's exactly what happens. You pull that tool out and the next thing you know, you've lost it. Because you've learned how to fire the weapon, use the weapon, but not retain the weapon when someone tries to wrestle it from your possession. And I can promise you, fair percentage of the time it's taken from you, it is going to be used against you. So the better tool to take into the situation is a calm head and a plan. Know the neighborhood you're going into, do your research, keep your head on a swivel, make sure you pay attention to what's going around you. Don't just walk into the 7-Eleven without looking in the door first. Don't get out of your car without checking all four directions first. Don't just walk up to the front door of your house before taking a moment to survey the ground. Make sure no one's hiding behind a bush. When lights are out around your house, make sure that they're fixed quickly. So don't go into areas that are dark. It's the common sense stuff that Mike talked about. That's the best prescription for safety. It's common sense and a plan. The minute you bring weapons into the occasion, setting aside your right to have it or not, you run the risk of having it taken from you. And the question then comes, what would you do if that happened? Thank you, Chief Lauder. Yes, ma'am. Hi, thank you for all you're doing. Um, this question is mostly directed toward Chief Rees. I was at an NAACP meeting recently, and you were there and talked to us, so thank you very much. One of the stories you told was about a um, housing development that was seeing a lot of violence. And you mentioned one instance where there was a camera, and there were children playing in the playground, and you recorded what happened when they heard shots fired. They fled the area, jumped out of swings and everything. And that's tragic. That, that that's happening. And you said, though, that the landlord does not want police patrolling the area. And I'm assuming that's because it's bad PR. And that, to me, is horrible. I'm a clergy.
clergy person. I have a lot of different hats, but I'm a clergy person. And I was just wondering, the second part of my question, is there something the clergy can do in regard to this? Like, could we, could we help patrol the area or say prayers at the site and at a vigil or something? And then for the rest of you, I know a lot of clergy people that are concerned about this issue, the gun violence. Do you see any way that we can participate with you in stopping the gun violence? Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you for that question. And um, when, it, when it comes to some of these uh, communities, like the one uh, that, that um, she's referencing, as law enforcement, we have to be very careful about identifying certain apartment communities by name um, uh, for, for privacy reasons. I, I will say that in that particular instance, while the, the apartment management might be resistant to law enforcement, when we have community members coming out, with tears in their eyes telling our officers and telling us that we don't want this violence in our community. We'll listen to people who live there first. We will continue to do our jobs. We will continue to patrol. We try to engage our um, um, some of our apartment communities management in conversations about how we can build relationships between law enforcement. So our officers aren't just faceless people driving. They'll get out of the car, they'll walk through communities, but we'd like to have that management support. We'll reach out to management and say, hey, you've had this violence in your community. Are you planning on having any town halls? If you are, can we have officers present? Maybe come, maybe talk, answer questions. Um, we are, we, we have some in our community that, that are receptive to law enforcement that says, yes, come build those bridges and, and work with our communities. But because of some of the um, business aspects of um, the properties that turnover have a high turnover rate, they're perpetually selling to different ownership, it makes that relationship that much more uh, challenging. Sometimes we'll have great relationships and then suddenly the, the, the apartments are sold, another company has oversight, buys them up, different management system, different perspective, and uh, they're just not interested in having those relationships. Then that's when it's come upon our officers to develop those relationships with the community members. You know, we'll give the opportunity for the, 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 the businesses to have that same relationship, but if they don't want that relationship, then, then that's, that's their decision. We're not going to impose that on them, but we will find a work route to work with community members who especially want us in their communities. And, um, you know, it, it, it just brought up another another point that, that the three of us have heard time and time again about where that balance is, but we're not over-policing. And especially over-policing in communities that, that have um, um, minorities that live in those communities. And so we want to be very intentional with our community engagement that we have buy-in from the communities and we're just not overreacting and coming in and having zero tolerance um, policies or laws that we're actually engaged with communities and they get an understanding of why it is that our officers are, are, are doing these patrols. And that, that just comes with really good police officers that, that we've been hiring that care about the, the community. So I hope that answers your question. And if I, well, if I could just say one thing, you know, one thing about Charlottesville you realize really on, early on is that um, not the folks who might be the loudest aren't necessarily ones who, who speak for the community. Um, you get out in the community, and, and we've done this, uh, what I got here is, you know, you get out and you talk to residents, and they'll bring you in their own, and you sit in their kitchen and hear their real story, what they really want in their police department on their front porches, on their sidewalks. And so uh, I think, I know all of us are very um, cognizant of that, that it's important that we're, you know, and look, 
there are um, the activist community, they speak for someone too, right? And, and I have to listen to them. And, and, I, and they have very valid points with a lot of things. But it's equally as important that we're out there speaking to the folks in the community. And so just yesterday, uh, there was somebody sent a video of our officers playing basketball with kids in the neighborhood. Guess what was happening? Guess what wasn't happening on that street when those officers there were playing basketball? Nobody was shooting. <laughs> right? That's policing. And that's what, that, that video got like 140,000 views in 24 hours. And so, you know, it's, it's what we do in these communities. You know, when we talk about hotspot policing, you know, we don't have a lot of cops. We wish we had more, but we don't. So we have to deploy our resources where they're needed the most. And so it's important that we're focused on what we're actually doing in those communities when we're there, in those areas when we're there. And it's building relationships. It's policing in a procedurally just way. It's, it's getting to know people's first names, talking to them on their, getting to know their kids, building relationships. And when you do that, the folks who live in those communities will tell you who shouldn't be there. Because the reality is most folks that are committing these violent crimes don't even live in these communities. Right? So that's, that's what we're getting at. So. Chief Lago? Not much more I can say, but I'll answer uh, the direct question that you asked, and that was what's the, specifically in the clergy when bad stuff happens, whether the police are part of the bad stuff that happened or the community was part of the bad stuff that happened and people come out of the woodwork and they want to they express themselves. And they bring signs and they stand in front of buildings and sometimes there's buildings or police stations. I'd love to open my drapes at the station after a, a crisis and see 100 people out there praying for me. Right? Not just sending me an email saying, hey, we're praying for you, but actually showing up and showing the rest of the community that we're praying for you. Not just you cops, but the whole community in a safe way, in a calm way, in a peaceful way, in a, well, I'll just say it, in a Christian way. How about that? I think that's what the clergy can do for us every day, not just in the midst of crisis. So we have about five more minutes. I have a question. I'm wondering, with, with the wake, you know, everybody's got a camera now. Is it harder to be a police officer today than before cell phones? Everybody's got a camera. Does it affect policing in any way? I, I don't know. That's a great question. I, I don't think it does. I think times have changed um, since I first started um, 20 plus years ago. And uh, that was before body cameras. And uh, our police department uh, recently transitioned. That was one of the first things I did as chief of police is uh, institute body cameras for our officers. And when I had those conversations with officers, I was surprised by the feedback that, that I got, just how much the officers wanted body cameras. It's not only to protect them um, from frivolous complaints, but to show transparency. And so, um, if, if, if our officers out here following policy, following the law, doing the right thing, then they shouldn't care who's videotaping them or what, you know, there, there, there's cameras everywhere. To your point, not just, not just phone cameras, but cameras 
that, that catch different things all throughout the community. So, so my question, my pushback to officers is, okay, what are you doing that makes you so uncomfortable? You're a public servant, you're on duty. What is it that you're doing that makes you uncomfortable? And, and um, so I, I don't think that that is hindered our profession in any way. I think it just, it, it provides the community greater access. And I will just, speaking of cameras, and speaking of what, what Chief Koch has talked about with his officers playing basketball, we had a very similar event in the county after our homicide earlier on this year. And our evening shift officers took it upon themselves. They, they bought a basketball hoop, and a portable one, they stood it up, they were playing games, and it wasn't a one-off. They engaged in the specific community over and over again on their own, and they didn't do it for, for praise. It wasn't a directive of the chief of police to say, hey, I need y'all to go out there and do a PR stunt. They did it on their own authentically because they care, and nothing says that they. There, there's nothing in the in the rule book or, or the the job description of the police officer that says you have to do this. They don't, but they do it because they care. And so when when you see viral moments like the one Chief Cotters was talking about, it, it makes them more impactful because it wasn't scripted and it wasn't some PR stunt. And, and um, I speak for the three of us. We love catching our guys doing things right. And you know, so many times we'll get complaints about, hey, your officer was speeding, or they were kind of rude and they rolled their eyes at me. We get those complaints all the time, right? But it, it means more to us when somebody takes the time and says, I want to thank your officers. Because we don't do it for recognition. Our job's hard enough. We don't do it for praise. We don't do it for glory. We don't do it for recognition. But it means a lot when the, that officer who is going from call to call to call and you don't know what it is that they have been experiencing or what they witnessed that day for somebody just to thank them for what they do and um and that means a lot so that was a roundabout way of answering that question i'll turn it over to my colleagues Michael. Uh, i just i think it makes it better i think it's made it made us better as a profession right it's just cameras I mean, yeah, I, I have the opportunity to come into work every day and sit down and review body cam footage of the great work my officers do each and every day. And I think it's like probably you, you two would agree, you know, this job, is, unfortunately, we don't get to get out on the street as much as we would like to and see the work firsthand. But, you know, I'll sit and I'll watch these the body cam footage, whether it would be a review from a use of force that all eventually land on my desk or or whatever it may be, and I'm in awe. Because it's easy to forget when we are out there having to arrest someone in a very difficult situation when everybody's watching and you're, I mean, the, the amount of restraint our officers use is just, if you had the opportunity to see what, what we all got to get to see every day, um, yeah, I, I'm, yeah, I think it makes us way better than, than we've ever been. And uh, technology is improving and it's, it'll keep making us better, so. Chief Longo? <coughs> the only thing I would add to that, and I had this discussion with your former colleagues in Northern Virginia, the Northern Virginia Chiefs, about how body-worn cameras have influenced our business operations over the last couple of years. And it has, in ways that I think have been really positive. Not only is it a great tool to gather evidence, mm -hmm. additional evidence, not just a written report, but now it's captured in real time on body-worn camera video, well-preserved. It's utilized in courts sometimes to authenticate um, certain other types of evidence, oftentimes to um, be used to admit impressions of officers on the scene of incidents. 
and the absence of live testimony is often used to evaluate things like use of force. It's better than this, the subjective description of the person writing the report after the force. You can actually see what happened from the beginning, and these cameras actually buffer 30 seconds before the incident really even begins, so you get to see what leads up to it. Um, so I think it's been a remarkable tool for us, and I think as that, as that particular technology continues to evolve, I think we'll continue to see great benefits from it. Thank you, Lago. Uh, we got a couple of minutes. Is there any nugget of wisdom anybody would like to leave on our audience? Oh, we have more questions. A gazillion years ago, like 50 or so, my husband and I went on, on ride-alongs with the St. Paul, Minnesota Police Department. Do any of the departments here do that for the public to see what you actually do? All three. All three of us do. You just have to just call us and you can fill out a uh, waiver and a uh, ride-along request. I'm assuming it's the yeah. same for, for both same. of you. Yeah. And come do a ride-along. We, we love it. Our officers enjoy it. Absolutely. Uh, I live in the city. I work here at WCBR. And I have to drive through the university every day. So thank each of you and your agencies. Um, I encourage everybody, if you don't follow them on social media, do it. They are all posting wonderful stories of the good work that they do, as well as asking for help. Uh, but my question is, um, I'm sure that each of you personally and your teams have experienced trauma in your work. Um, do you have adequate resources? Who can we advocate with to get you those resources? What kind of debriefing happens? Um, Essentially, how can we help support you and your mental health? No, thank you for that. Um, and, and I'll kick it off. In Albemarle County, um, we have a variety of resources. We have a peer support team for officers. We have a critical incident um, management team that, that helps um, uh, facilitate conversation with officers go through trauma. Uh, we also have a uh, professional police psychologist on staff, or not on staff, but on retainer. That, that our officers use. I think some of the other jurisdictions um, uh, are the same. So we have, we've made a lot of headway over the past five to 10 years when it comes to examining mental health and the impact that trauma, cumulative trauma has on our officers and PTSD has on our officers. And that's a relatively new su um, subject or recent subject um, in terms of the history of law enforcement. And as leaders, um, it's imperative that we change the negative, uh, change the negative stigma associated with people that are suffering from trauma, uh, because a lot of a lot of officers are Type A personalities, and and they they the, there was this stigma, especially when I came up, you know, that, that having some sort of mental health issue was a sign of weakness, and admitting that. But now, it's we'd rather we'd rather catch it earlier on and give people those resources. So um, making sure, it, it, and it is an evolving field, so if there's any ideas or suggestions that you have that would benefit, uh, not just law enforcement, we're talking about all first responders, we're talking about dispatchers, we're talking about firefighters as well, that go to these traumatic scenes. So if you have or know subject matter experts that are willing to help, say, hey, y'all are doing some things, but you can be doing better. And, um, because at, at the end of the day, these men and women who put on a badge and gun every day to protect our community, uh, we want them to live long and healthy lives. And it, it's imperative that we take care of them. And, and I'll just share, we similar resources. I think 
One of the big things, though, that, and I can tell you everybody at this table, I'm sure, is, is the same, it, and it comes from the top, it's creating an environment where folks aren't afraid to come forward and go get help. I can tell you that has not always been the case in our profession. I remember, and it wasn't very long ago in our profession, where somebody would need help. We would send them to go get help, and then before they came back, they'd go to a fit for duty, and then that fit for duty would say they can't be a police officer anymore, and we threw away a lot of good cops. And shame on us for doing that. I would like to think we're getting a lot better. Um, actually, I know we are, but we don't do that anymore. One of my officers needs to get help and go somewhere. Go get it. Tell me when you're ready to come back. That's it. That's it. And, and you have to do that. You've got to create that environment where folks know they can go get the help they need. Um, and once they get it, they, they have a job to come back to. And the fact, I mean, uh, to me, it's courageous to do that. It's it's honorable and um, and again it, it, it starts at the top about creating that environment so yeah I can't top that well done uh, okay. Go ahead. Uh, yes, um, do you ever get involved in computer scams where a crime has been committed to a local citizen uh, we do see them we do see computer scams you see see with the elderly, right? People prey on the elderly, specifically, you know, they uh, try to scam you for money or call, and, you know, what's your social security number, say they're from the Social Security Administration, stuff like that. So we do see those. Um, I will tell you that just be careful what kind of information you put out there and, and give out there. And, and we'll, yes, we do see them and we investigate them. Yeah, it's also uh, important to, if you or a loved one has been the victim of some sort of cyber scam. Um, there's a lot of embarrassment that, that goes with that. And people are reluctant to reach out to law enforcement. And I encourage you to, to reach out to local law enforcement to document it so that way we're aware of the scam and we're looking into it and we're investigating it. And, and, and don't feel embarrassed about it, all right? Um, you didn't put yourself in that situation. Somebody did something to you or your loved one. So uh, make sure you reach out to law enforcement so that, uh, these types of cases can be investigated. Yeah, we do see it from time to time with our students in front of I see it from time to time with our international students as well. They get scammed by, by the internet. We certainly like them. Our colleagues have uh, in-house investigators that are capable of investigating those. Uh, and to the extent we bring in some of our other state and federal partners where they have jurisdiction, we certainly do. Not a lot, but from time to time we do. We have time for one more question, if there's one. Lady in the back, yes ma'am. Thank you. Batting cleanup. We've asked you a lot of questions, and you've been gracious and generous. But I'd like to follow up with the clergy person, which is a new term for me. And, and I think Chief Longo certainly hit it out of the park on praying. But what can each of you tell us as members of your community? How can we best help you do your job in protecting us. Give us some take-home points to ponder or action items that we can tell our friends. Thank you. I've often said that patience is an overrated virtue. <laughs> but that's what I'm going to ask you for. Two things, patience and trust. 
we oftentimes find ourselves in situations where we're investigating things that oftentimes take time. And uh, people are impatient. They're impatient because of social media and other means by which people can collaborate and begin to ask a lot of questions and fire each other up. And why don't they tell us anything? Why are they all that? Must be a conspiracy. No, we just happen to be part of a process that's pretty complicated. When crimes happen, we have to do investigations, and investigations take time. It requires gathering facts from people who are willing to talk to us and share information. It requires us gathering evidence and sending it off to places where we may not have control over, like the State Lab in Richmond. Um, so it will take time to give answers that people logically want answers to. So I, I ask for patience. And I ask for trust that when I tell you, I will be honest with you at the end of the day. When something is done and we're finished with this investigation, I will tell you what happened. And if we were part of the wrong, I'll accept responsibility for that. But be patient and trust that at the end of the day, the people that are sitting here are responsible people. We're husbands, we're fathers, I'm going to say grandfathers. <laughs> We're professionals at what we do, uh, and we just need your, we need your trust and cooperation, so my two cents. Chief Reese. Yeah, I'll add on to those. So those are two great um, points. Uh, the point I'd like to make is uh, understanding. Having uh, been here and been in the command post for the 2017 Unite the Right rallies, and um, it is, is taking a time like this and inviting your law enforcement, whether it be a neighborhood watch or a community event, to get to know your, your, your law enforcement professionals better. It doesn't even have to be the chief of police, it could be a patrol officer, whether it be a ride along, but seek to understand and know the challenges that are, that, that are associated with their job. And not only that, but it works the other way. Understand what's going on in the community. Understanding what the community feels about you as your profession, as, as public servants in Albemarle County or Charlottesville University. So seeking to understand goes both ways, and, and just not assuming the worst in, in, in others. Because we are um, human, and um, officers do make mistakes. And uh, sometimes there are little mistakes where grace is applied, and they're trainable and they're fixable. Sometimes there are significant criminal mistakes where they need to be held accountable. But um, you know, either way, seek and understand what our officers doing and have that dialogue with your local police department is the best advice I can give the community, uh, whether it's doing something great or doing something that officers need to do better. Um, so that, that's my addition to, to Chief Walmart's point. So I'm gonna steal a phrase from our new, newly minted city manager, because I think he says it best. If you're mad, tell me why you're mad. If you want something, tell me what you want. And we're gonna have a conversation. Let's make sure we're having thoughtful conversations, right? Um, I think, you know, and I said this when I first got here, I met with all of our elected officials one-on-one, had, had some frank conversations and just said, listen, words matter. Words of our elected leaders matter. Words of our chief matters. Words from our community matter. We can have disagreements. That's okay. We can have, lively conversations about things without calling each other names. But actually, I think we have to, we're better as, we're better for it, right? We could talk about police reform, 
without screaming and yelling at each other and hating each other. I, I can tell you right now, all three of us up here, we believe in police reform. But in the right way. And, and respecting the men and women who out here do this very noble job each and every day in very dangerous situations. And so um, just, just being willing to have those conversations, because I can tell you, everybody up here, we're not afraid to have difficult conversations. We have them all the time, and uh, we need to have them, and, and we're open to it. So if you're mad, tell me why you're mad, and if you want something, tell us what you want. Thank you. Thank you for your time, thank you for your service, and thank you all for coming.